Hi, everybody, and welcome once again, if you're joining us again, to The Goods, a film podcast. This is our 35th episode, and we're getting in some fashionably late 2021 Academy Awards coverage. Are you with us, Dan? I am here. Yes, indeed. I am battling a cold, so if I sound a little raspy, that's why. I will hopefully be able to edit out any sniffles or sneezes or coughing attacks that come my way mid-recording. But I am a little more cantankerous than normal, so just prepare yourself for that. We're like the post office. Nothing stops us. An episode a week. The train keeps rolling. (laughs) We've uh, maintained that pace since September. And here we go. (laughs) Get on the train. (laughs) And... The movie that we'll be talking about here today is the documentary film winner from this year's Oscars. It's the South African film My Octopus Teacher, directed by Pippa Ehrlich and James Reed, and starring slash narrated slash dubiously filmed by South African filmmaker Craig Foster. So... I have a guess for how you watch this movie, Dan, um, but how, how did you watch it? So I found it on Netflix and you kind of led me up to that last episode when you were introducing the film. You said, hey, did you know there are a lot of Netflix Oscar nominees this year? And I hadn't really thought about that or known that. And it didn't make it easy for me to find it. I just pulled up Netflix and you search Octopus. It's the first result. Yeah, Netflix's role in the Academy Awards this year is staggering. Uh, And if you look at, like, all the streamers together, it, like, blots out other studios. They're just gone. I mean, if, if you... Not completely, but it's a sea change from back when, like, Roma got a nomination... And people like, well, I don't know. Scorsese has beef with Marvel, so I don't know if it was him who said this, but I I think it was Spielberg said, oh, they shouldn't take Netflix contributions. That, you know, that dilutes the significance. And now here we are this year. Netflix had 36 Oscar nominations for Netflix originals, so-called, which, of course, I think is just movies that they throw distribution money behind very well represented here yeah spielberg's already on the wrong side of history on that one i do think it was spielberg and it's kind of staggering it's like a quarter of the best picture nominees were were netflix and i don't know they've they've really gotten themselves in the game real time like i feel like it wasn't too long ago i don't know if we talked about it on the pod or not but just how wild it was when they're releasing original content that's not airing anywhere else. It's originally going to be streaming. And here we are less than 10 years later, about 10 years later. And they're just, again, 36 nominations. That's, that is not an anomaly. And just because we're completionists, I wanted to uh, 
dive into this statistic a little more. So, worth noting that one of the Best Picture nominees was an Amazon Prime production, uh, Sound of Metal. Amazon also nominated for One Night in Miami and Borat Subsequent Movie Film. But here, drumroll, are the 36 Netflix nominees. So, two of the Best Picture nominees were from Netflix. They were Trial of the Chicago 7 and Mank. Uh, Dan, I think you would actually like Trial of the Chicago 7. It's written and directed, I think, by Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, that's one that, that's been on my watch list. I've heard mixed things about it, but I do love me some Aaron Sorkin dialogue. I enjoyed it more than I expected going in. It has Eddie Redmayne doing an American accent, which, like, made my skin crawl. It just seemed so unnatural. <laughs> it's just wrong, I, yeah. At first, I couldn't tell who he was, even though to hear that coming out of his face, it just was very jarring. And then I'm like, wait a minute. I saw him in that Alan Turing movie. And it's like, no, wait a minute. I saw him in those... He's the Fantastic Beast guy. Yeah, why is he making that sound? <laughs> Next thing you know, Benedict Cumberbatch will be doing a southern accent. Did that actually happen? I, I, I know there are some where Benedict Cumberbatch does an American accent, uh, specifically the Doctor Strange movies. No, I haven't seen anything where he's done an American accent. I do know that Daniel Craig did a very drawly southern accent for Knives Out. But um, I know people have strong opinions about fake accents in movies. Yeah. A lot of them are really good at it, and you wouldn't know. But uh, what I always expect is, like, there's a scene in Monty Python's The Meaning of Life where they start trying to do American accents, and it sounds very strange because they're not good <laughs> at it. It's like a fake American accent. And that's, that's what I want to hear. <laughs> my wife is amazingly good at detecting if somebody's not naturally speaking in an American accent, like if they're impersonating something else. Like we were watching some TV show. Uh, what was, oh, it was Gossip Girl. And one of the characters, whenever he talked, she would say, he's talking weird. There's something wrong with the way he's talking. And I didn't hear it. I just heard a dude talking. She was like, look it up. Is he, is he British or something? And in fact, he was. So it always impresses me when, when people can hear those things, especially as well as she can. That is impressive. She'd be good at catching spies. <laughs> Maybe. But we got a little sidetracked there by Mr. Eddie Redmayne. To continue on down this absolute slate of Netflix nominees, we have... The animated film Over the Moon, we have documentary winner My Octopus Teacher, our subject, Hillbilly Elegy, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, The White Tiger, The Midnight Sky, Two Distant Strangers, which won for live-action short, Eurovision, The Story of Fire Saga, Shaun the Sheep 2, Farmageddon, the Life Ahead, Pieces of a Woman, Da Five Bloods, If Anything Happens, I Love You, 
Crip Camp, another documentary nominee, and A Love Song for Latasha. The one of those that I want to call out is Two Distant Strangers, which I believe was a short, so it was a, a live-action short nomin- winner, as you pointed out, and that is a time-loop movie about racism. So if we had still been in time-loop month, that could have been an interesting selection. Indeed. Uh, I don't know what it is. It's in the air, but like the last five years or so has just seen a huge uptick in time-loop movies. They're all the rage. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I like the format, so I'm not complaining too much. But you're right. There was like a couple others that have been released since February. I think it was called uh, Final Boss or something like that. A video game themed action one. Um, they're just they're just pouring out. It's like the zombie boom from like 2003 to 2006. That's right. Yeah. Or like the supernatural romance phenomenon post Twilight. Indeed. <laughs> and and when it comes to paranormal romance, this film that we're talking about today is yet another Oscar winner about a person forming a weird romantic bond with a marine creature. <laughs> That's the new uh that's the new Oscar bait these days is you got to have a, a somebody with Troy McClure's romantic abnormality. <laughs> you got they got to be into fish. Not not to jump ahead too much. I, I wrote down some quotes that are verbatim from the movie just to give you the listeners an inkling of what this movie is like from that perspective. This is narrated by by this guy um Craig Foster. So he says, I was too overcome with my feelings for her. The barrier between the octopus and I seemed to dissolve. I was in love with her. Like there's definitely a chance. Keep this in mind, listeners, as we talk through it. There is a chance that this dude at some point fantasized about having sex with an octopus during this, this whole experience. But I mean, we've all been there, right? (laughs) And of course, he's got the great South African accent. When it comes to fake accents, this this was one we would probably not be able to pull off. Uh, but picture the Ronnie Mervis ads on the radio if you're ever listening at Christmas time and they're trying to sell you diamonds. Are you familiar with those, Dan? Do you listen to a lot of ninety-seven point one? I have heard those ads. I, for whatever reason, it didn't click in my head that it was a South African accent. But obviously, that's where he has spent most of his life, so that makes perfect sense. And I know the accents down there sound vaguely British, but not quite British. Yeah, it's it's basically British. Uh, <laughs> it's like somewhere between British and Australian. Right. Uh, but yeah, that's where the diamonds come from. I had a friend who went to uh, elementary school with who had dual South African and U.S. citizenship, and his dad was South African. And so that's the only place I've ever heard that accent in real life. But uh, another another South African movie, the one with the aliens, District 9. Mm, yeah. Uh, coming into this one, that, that's probably the only other South African movie I've ever seen. Interesting, yeah. But 
basically this whole movie, aside from beautiful undersea B-roll, is one long interview with the this guy, South African filmmaker Craig Foster. And he's telling the story of about a year that he spent solo diving in this area that he calls the Kelp Forest, which is near Cape Town. He kind of hand-wavily explains that he was in the midst of a midlife crisis, and he doesn't really specify what happened, which grated on me a little bit, because this is a, a big decision to make, and we don't get any details. Like, ostensibly, this is a very personal story, but he's not sharing personal details that I feel like you need to understand everything that's going on. Yeah, I mean, I would go one step further. This was basically movie ruining for me, to some extent. Like, you open with this absolutely beautiful photography. We get some of it underwater, some of it kind of overhead, either drone or helicopter footage of this beautiful landscape and i'm like okay i can spend some time here and then we cut to this just mopey ass plywood of a dude who's just so uninteresting from the start and he's talking about this midlife crisis he's going through how he made a documentary film with his brother and now he he just can't manage to do anything and so whatever go through a midlife crisis but the thing that actually pissed me off and i'm a dad and uh, is that he he talks about how because of whatever malaise was going on that he just couldn't articulate except that he didn't want to do anything and was feeling stressed. He's the second person when describing it. So like put yourself in his shoes. But this is what he said. So he said, you've got this young child that's growing up. Tom, I just couldn't in that state be a good father to my son. I had to have a radical change. And it's like, if you want me to be sympathetic to you, don't talk about how like you're basically considering essentially abandoning or we learn he didn't really abandon him. Like, yeah, the son actually came along, but that's not divulged until about two thirds of the way through the film. But like basically focusing your life around free diving in this cold water instead of like, I don't know, facing your stress and your trauma. I don't know. It made me mad. Yeah, pretty much the only two things he says are, yeah, he lost interest in his career, which seems to just be carrying a camera around and is part of what he ends up doing anyway. So, you know, I, I guess it was a creative impetus like, OK, so you solved that problem by undertaking this project, maybe like it, it gave you a new movie subject. But, yeah, the other thing he says is he was questioning his ability to be a good father. So abandoning your child for a year is probably not going to solve that problem. Bad, <laughs> yeah. bad approach. Uh, and, yeah, you've got more experience, more skin in this game than I do, Dan. But just uh, even from an outside perspective, seems questionable. I kind of get what he was trying to do, what the directors were trying to do. It's basically like... Okay, who's the target audience? The target audience is for like moms and dads who are burned out from a hard day's work who sit down and stream a pretty documentary on Netflix. I respect that. That's that's a good thing to create. And so 
guess give us this generic thing that we can relate to that without putting too much thought or detail in it. Hey, you've been stressed out. Now imagine the way that you took that out was by running away for a year to go swimming with a camera. It's like to get us in his headspace. But for me, it did not work. It did the opposite. Right. It just made me mad at him. Yeah. I, I think some of the motivation is definitely escapism, which I think people have been looking for this past year. And this is a kind of escapism that is still socially distanced. It's like, go off and be completely by yourself. I mean, the look at the best picture winner this year is somebody who has no home at all and is driving around in a van. Right. So I, I think that's a theme. It's like, what can I do to put meaning back into my life while still accepting and embracing this new norm of being detached from other people. Exactly. Yeah. I I think that's, I think that's on point. But this project that he decides he's going to undertake as we've kind of been dancing around is he's going to dive alone, at least for the most part, every single day in this one kelp forest. And he talks at length about how it's very cold and that is that aspect of it makes it bracing and like the blood f- flows through your body. And I'll, this is probably going to be a short episode. Uh, unlike the last documentary we covered, Rock of Fire Explosion, I guess arguably F for Fake, we didn't come at this one with a whole lot of supplementary material and past knowledge we're just kind of taking it as it flows into our eyeballs and i'd say most of what's good and great about this film is the visuals and like the music it's almost like a a tone poem or something like what this has going for it is it shows you the undersea world that he documented every day yeah i agree and one thing that really works about it that i don't always get the impression when i watch other nature documentaries which to be fair i haven't done too many of but one thing this movie does really well is you can tell that he's actually capturing the wilderness that he's observing the underwater in an unguarded state and like a very active state where he's kind of already assimilated into it it's like things aren't shying away from him you really feel like you're seeing something authentic about the wildlife there like this whole ecosystem come to life right so he pontificates that if he puts himself in the environment over and over and is just kind of a constant presence that the animals will come to trust him And at least in what we see, that seems to be borne out. I thought it was really cool the way that he climbs down the trees to get into this zone. Because these plants are really strange. They're, I mean, they they grow from the seabed up to the top. So they're kind of trees, but the trunks are like ropey and squiggle around in the water. So it's like he's doing a rope climb at the gym, but he he pulls himself down beneath the waves. 
And every time he did it, it was like perspective changing. There's really something so beautiful about filming life underwater. It's like the water distorts the angles and the light in a really pleasing, flowing way. And colors kind of flicker and meld together. There's just a haziness and weightlessness to everything that it's just so visually appealing to look at. I mean, I went to the aquarium with my family last week and it's just intoxicating to sit there and watch these things swim around in the water. It's like you can stand and look at one scene for minutes and minutes at a time and not even realize that you're just kind of watching it. I don't know. It is really cool to see. And they, the footage here really was lovely. Yeah. I, I was struck over and over by how visually engaging everything was. Do you have a favorite aquarium animal, Dan? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I'll just tell you one that I loved this time. I don't know if I have like a consistent favorite, but we went to the Baltimore Aquarium and it's got this really cool bit where they call it Shark Alley. So it starts by you're kind of above the coral and it's kind of normal fish. It's supposed to be like a North Atlantic coral area or something. And then you keep going down. It's like a spiral ramp and you go down and all of a sudden you're in the dark water. They play this moody, haunting music and it's tons and tons of sharks. And they did a good job of bringing in some of the creepy shaped sharks. And the one that always fascinates me is the one whose snout looks like a chainsaw. It's like really long, like three feet long. And there's little spines, almost like teeth on it. Um, I always love seeing that guy. Any of the sharks there are fun to watch. But what about you? Do you have a favorite aquarium animal? Also at Baltimore, I like their big tank of just enormous stingrays. Like way bigger than I ever thought they could be. Yes, yeah. That, that whole tank is awesome. The way that you can kind of look into it. And there are parts of it where it's just huge glass so it's almost like you're under their water with them and it's a wide variety. They had up until last year, this enormous, really old turtle, but unfortunately it passed away. We went, not this most recent time, but the time before we went and we were looking, where's the big turtle? Where's the big turtle? And someone overheard us and told it that it, that it passed away. But I agree that tank is another really, it's a really cool piece of the aquarium and you get the stingrays and you have the really bright exotic fish. The aquarium is fun. Yeah. And I don't remember where I saw them most recently, but anywhere that has Nautilus in a tank. I, I, I really like Nautiluses. This, are those the spiral shell things that like grow out in the pattern? Yeah, it's like a spiral shell with a little cuttlefish sticking out of the end. Yeah, there's a really cool exhibit at the Baltimore Aquarium where they have a cross section of it and a d description of how it works. And you can actually see like how the chambers fill and empty in it. It's, it's pretty cool. Wow. And you mentioned music playing in the shark exhibit. I think music plays a big role in My Octopus Teacher. All throughout, as we're seeing this beautiful undersea footage, we get a lot of sort of new agey piano instrumental. I would call this dad music. <laughs> Interesting. Now, this, this is a term that we should discuss because when my brother and I use it, obviously we're talking about our dad, who has a very distinct taste in music. I, I would describe this music as being similar to um, Yanni or Ray Lynch, who did the album Deep Breakfast. 
our dad, he likes a lot of instrumental kind of world music or new age things like James Last, who's like a German band leader. And yes, Yanni. A lot of these kind of virtuoso guys who what they do when they do their shows is they lead an orchestra that plays contemporary instrumental. So that is dad music to me, and it is here in abundance. But uh, what would you, what would your definition of dad music be, Dan? Would it be very different from that? It would indeed be very different than that. To me, dad music, and I speak of this both my dad's taste, but also, I don't know, maybe I'm projecting, but I feel like in general, there's a type of music that the majority of dads like, and it's like radio-friendly classic rock, basically. So like nothing too heavy or grimy, but the type of thing you can hum along to and you know, probably the same 55 tracks that they've been playing since 1990 at this point, like Sweet Home Alabama and Amy by Pure Prairie League, those types of songs. Man, Sweet Home Alabama, I can never tell apart from Werewolves of London. <laughs> like you listen to like the first 10 seconds of the song and I can never know which one it's going to be. Interesting. But I would say the one place where my definition of dad music verges into the more broad all dads music would be jimmy buffett my father is a jimmy buffett fan honestly i think jimmy buffett's message is well represented in this film just the idea kind of like almost a 90s tiki revival idea of being able to escape to a tropical island that just being an idea that's kind of buried in the minds of middle-aged white men. That's a good barometer. If you really like Jimmy Buffett music, don't even listen to any more of this podcast. Go turn on My Octopus Teacher, because it will absolutely be up your alley. This octopus and this dude just vibing. It's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> Perhaps off the coast of Cape Town. Yeah, all we need is a shot of this guy sipping a margarita. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't figured it out by now... Pretty soon after he starts his daily pilgrimage to the ocean, Craig Foster discovers an octopus living down there. But the way he comes across it is unusual. It's surrounded in this amalgamation of rocks and shells that it's got all up around it like a little fortress. I had never seen this tactic before. Agreed, it was pretty interesting way to... Meet the eponymous octopus, her, excuse me. It's important that it's a her. Oh yes, always a her. Never, never its home. Always her home. Always her tentacle. Can I, I have a rant on this. Oh, me too, me too. But uh, <laughs> yeah, what, what do you got for the moment? Because I'm definitely going to be coming back to it. It's an octopus is an octopus. It's not a person. I mean, I get people being attached to animals, but, like, it's an animal. It's not a person. You might project your emotional relationship onto it, but it doesn't feel the same way. You're just a piece of its scenery. It does not have that type of connection to you. I haven't seen the movie Grizzly Man, but my brother sent me a clip, and it's made me really want to see Grizzly Man. It's director Werner Herzog narrating over some footage of the grizzly man guy and, and i went and looked it up because this movie made me think of it i'm just going to read that to you because 
very much on Werner Herzog's side on this one. Can you do a Werner Herzog voice while you read it? No, I won't subject you to that. Okay. I discover no kinship, no understanding, no mercy. I see only the overwhelming indifference of nature. To me, there is no such thing as a secret world of bears, or octopi as it may be. In this blank stare speaks only of a half-bored interest in food. But for Timothy Treadwell, or Craig Foster as it may be, this bear was a friend, a savior. And I'm with, with Herzog on this. There's, I think it was in this guy's head. Yeah, but would you join the secret world of bears if you could? <laughs> oh man, I love me some bears. Uh, something about bears... It's just, it always makes me smile. I would definitely, well, let's put it this way. I would absolutely watch Grizzly Man with enthusiasm. I think Disney also has a bear-themed nature documentary that I would definitely watch at some point. So one of my all-time favorite early YouTube clips is a bear gets caught up in a tree and they have to shoot him with a tranquilizer dart and they put a trampoline underneath him. So you just see this bear falling out of a tree landing on a trampoline, bouncing halfway back up and plopping to the ground next to it. Something about bears. I expect Disney's bears and Grizzly Man are probably somewhat different in tone, but (laughs) maybe due for a Violent Ends uh, pairing. (laughs) That's pretty good, yeah. So what could be called a plot in My Octopus Teacher just involves... Craig repeatedly showing up at this octopus's house uninvited and she gradually gets more comfortable around him and comes out of the den starts doing octopus stuff around him and they do seem to form some kind of a bond I mean the octopus like climbs all over him it is very alien and interesting to watch what the octopus does it has all these different ways of moving around and it can change colors and take on different shapes. I mean, there's lots of interesting things about octopi. No argument here at all. Agreed. And it does a good job of conveying just how weird and sentient they are. Again, I don't buy that it had this soulful connection, but I do buy that it was very aware of the things that were going on around it and like just so fascinating. It could change texture Like, I would not, if you had told me these were 10 different octopi that we were seeing, I would have believed you because of how much it changes the way it looks from scene to scene. Yeah, I mean, like, it can grow little horns on its head. It can, like, match the color and texture of the sand or the coral or whatever it's hiding around. And it can do it really fast. And it has, like, five different ways that it can walk and swim. And they shoot ink and just very different from any other animal that you might think of. And really nothing at all like the cartoon version of an octopus that I think. Is the cartoon version of an octopus you think of Squidward? (laughs) No. Is there an octopus in the Snorks? Did you ever watch that show? That's a little before my time. I am familiar just having seen like stills. I I think of it as like, it's the one that's not the Smurfs. So I just Googled it and there is in fact an octopus named Aki. Real creative there. In Snorks, who's kind of a pet to the Snorks. And I think this is pretty close to what I think of as like your octopus, where it's like the top like spherical region is basically the equivalent of a human head. 
and the tentacles are basically feet. But it's very different seeing it in person where like your sense of up and down and shape and I don't know, just texture, very fluid. As Foster is doing his daily trips, the calendar is ticking forward. I guess clocks tick, calendars don't, but days are advancing. And later than I would have thought, we learned that apparently this species of octopus only lives for about a year. So that adds like an urgency to things and a sense of uncertainty of, okay, we know this octopus is going to die at some point, but when is that going to happen? I think he lucked out finding it as early as he does because he ends up getting to observe it for like 300 days. And it's not just that it's only 300 days, but it goes in sometimes like 50 and 100 day spurts. So really this is like, I don't know, seven check-ins with this octopus. Another thing that's interesting about the octopus as a nature documentary subject, I don't know if you've seen the meme of when you're watching the prey documentary, you're cheering for the prey animal, and when you watch the predator documentary, you're cheering for the predator animal. But the octopus is both. Like, it's got to watch out for sharks, but it's also carnivorous. It's devouring fish and all kinds of little creatures. So it's a hunter as well. It's pretty cool seeing it in action with the hunting, like the way it like uses its body and tentacles to like just completely envelop something. And there's a whole bit where it figures out basically how to use a spine to inject and like directly the spot. It wasn't didn't go too much into I don't know if it was like a tool. I think it was part of the octopus itself, but like these mollusks that are trapped in these shells, basically the octopus drills into it to kill the thing on the inside so that it can open it up. And then there's cuts to a shot of Craig walking around, picking up shells and looking for the little holes where an octopus might've drilled through. Oh yeah. Because at one point he like spooks the octopus and then he's trying to find it again. And he makes this like conspiracy theory, Charlie day chart of the seabed to zero in on where the octopus has gone. So now he's <laughs> now he's stalking the octopus. <laughs> but uh, he does find it again, which I was pretty impressed by. I, I would not be as successful in finding a specific octopus again. I agree. And this was one of those moments where I was like, dude, if you spent as much time thinking about what your kid and your ex-wife were thinking about as you do this stupid octopus, then maybe you wouldn't have had this midlife crisis spiral. Yeah, my octopus teacher should really be called my midlife crisis. <laughs> but as I said, the octopus is both predator and prey, and we see that there are these little striped sharks always circling, and these are the none too sinisterly named pajama sharks <laughs> that apparently love to eat little octopi. Oh, also worth noting, they never say octopi in this movie. I noticed that too. It's like fish. I always learned the plural of fish is fish, but I guess octopus in South African, the plural is octopus, whereas I always learned it as octopi. 
I think octopi may be just a nerdish neologism, I guess. Just a word that's made up to, like, sound smart, but may not actually be the commonly accepted term. I could buy that. But I certainly like to say it, and when will I get a better chance than in this review? (laughs) Max out your octopi usage. At one point, a shark does attack the octopus. Um, Something that's interesting is that we see the guy visit the octopus both during the day, most of the time, and sometimes at night. Which, diving alone at night is an idea that just terrifies me. Yeah, it's free diving in near freezing water. I mean, we've seen what freezing water can do. We watch Titanic. That's true, yeah. And this guy does not wear scuba gear. He's just swimming around in his skivvies, you know, coming up out of the water to breathe when he needs to. Which is honestly pretty impressive. Like, props to Craig Foster for his swimming ability. Yeah, it it really blew me away. Because... We would have continuous shots that verge on to like a minute. And this dude, like I can barely hold my breath a minute. And this guy is doing it in icy waters, swimming around with a snorkel. It's pretty impressive. He's got to take incredible physical fitness to be able to do what he does. But he explains during this night footage that I guess octopus are more active during the night. That that's when they seek out their prey and do their hunting and kind of when they're leaving the home and being most active. But that also leaves them open for predation. And so I think it's during one of these night visits that a shark attacks the octopus and actually rips one of the arms off the octopus and like critically wounds it. Yeah, it was pretty wild. They caught this on camera like the whole extent of the attack and it was brutal because these sharks it's not just a chomp but like it gets a hold of the leg and the octopus is like trying to escape and the shark has this maneuver where it spins in circles yeah death roll like basically just trying to tear it off and i was cringing on behalf of the octopus have you eaten octopus before dan i have on your tv show in fact and I have a couple other times, although I, I no longer eat animals. But yeah, I, I have eaten it before. But the way it looks inside, it was crazy seeing it in a living animal because it's it's just pure white on the inside, like very shockingly white. It looked agonizing. What happened to the octopus? Agreed. Yeah, like reminded me of like when you, you ever take a bite out of a shrimp and you look where you took the bite. It's just like this bright white seafood flesh there. And because he visits every day, we actually see the process of the limb regrowing, which is not something I knew that octopus could do. I thought it was like, I've heard of starfish doing that and and lizards, but I had not heard about it with octopi. So that's kind of the pleasant surprise after the horror. Although it takes a hundred days which is about a third of the lifespan that we're witnessing. Yeah, man, only living for a year is not a lot. It reminds me of A Bug's Life. There's a scene where there's a grumpy housefly. He says, I got 24 hours to live and I'm not going to spend it here. (laughs) 
that always stuck with me thinking about what I would do if I only had 24 hours or some very short predetermined length of time to live. Although I guess many creatures would look at humans and say, wow, they only live 75 to a hundred years. That's, that's really short. So I don't know. Right. I've seen some people talk about how the way that elves in Lord of the Rings are to humans is the way humans are in real life to dogs. You know, how many dogs can we have known in our lifetime? It's like <laughs> 10 generations or something. A lot of animal movies draw a lot of thematic significance from comparing an animal that lives out its entire life in some short time span with the growth that a human undergoes in that same time. One of my favorite movies is the 1973 Charlotte's Web. I'm sure the more recent one covers a lot of the same ground, but just the idea that a spider lives out its entire life in like the blink of an eye and a pig lives out a lot of its life, but it's just one cycle of the seasons for a human, but that a, a human character can also develop over the course of a year as well. I think that's sort of the thesis statement that's unfolding here. Yeah, to some extent, but it manages to have the human be so much less interesting than the animal. And also, like, other than maybe, like, one snippet at the end, no real thoughtful commentary on the changes that he underwent during this time. Mostly he was just fascinated with underwater life. That that part did basically nothing for me. That's fair. Towards the end of the film... The dude shows up at the octopus's house, and her boyfriend is there. And it's like, oh man, you, you never told Craig about this guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. To me, I didn't even think about that, but that would be like the dramatic moment of, you know, some romantic drama. And there's another man all of a sudden in this, introducing a love triangle. A love octagon, if you will. <laughs> but... Apparently, Foster knows that octopus are very solitary animals, and they only meet up to mate at the end of their lifespan. And we've been watching the calendar pages fall away. This is day 300-something. And so the mating cycle has begun. Soon there will be baby octopuses. Then the mother octopus is going to die. There's a moment here where he says something like, and I knew then that the mating was about to begin. And although I was excited for her, I felt a little bit of sadness. And immediately my head filled in the blank because it wasn't me doing the mating. But it turns out just because it's near the end of her life. But reading between the lines, that's what I heard. I think there's something there. <laughs> <laughs> Partway through the movie, my dad said, Aren't there any other octopus around? <laughs> like, feeling bad that this octopus has to put up with this guy on all on her own all the time <laughs> can't you have some octopus friends and sure enough though after the octopus gives birth it does die and the body is just flopping around there out on the reef bed and one of the striped sharks carries it off into the distance this last 20 minutes or so of the the documentary earned back some of the goodwill that it squandered early on, both because I thought that this whole segment was very poignantly done and it was compelling that it actually caught like the, the last couple days 
of this octopus's life. And I realized that I, in fact, did have some compassion towards this octopus because I felt quite sad during its demise as it just decayed to nothing and got carried away as shark food. It made me think a little bit of community in the pilot episode where Jeff is giving the first of what would become the trademark of the show, of his monologues. And he talks about why are humans specially equipped to make communities? It's because we can project our feelings onto anything. For example, and he holds up a pencil, he says, if I told you that this pencil's name was Steve, and then he snaps it and says, a part of you has just died. And you see one of the characters going, oh, but that was kind of how I felt is like this movie set me up with the pencil named Steve, except it was an octopus just to have it die at the end. Um, but it worked. And I was also glad that the movie brought back his son to join him for some of the later portions of this adventure. Right. So it's kind of showing that he is using this as an opportunity to bond Although I, we don't see how the sun got into it, but one can imagine that maybe the sun said, hey, dad, I never see you around anymore. And the dad said, well, you can come and be part of my ice diving. And it's like, well, I don't really want to do that. But if you're if that's what you do every single day, I guess if I want to see you, I, I better start appreciating diving. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely <laughs> can imagine that playing out, especially because of the way Craig talks about his son, Tom, towards the end. He's like, yeah, wow, he, he just really seems to have a knack for it. And he's such a strong swimmer. And it's amazing seeing him picking up this love for, for this topic. And it's like exactly what a dad would say if their child had reluctantly been brought into their hobby or their passion. My question that I'd like to bring to bear now is... Is the octopus in this film a manic pixie dream girl? <laughs> so for those who might be new to the term, this is kind of an online joke referring to a character archetype in stories who is a quirky female who instills joie de vivre in a sullen male character. So Zoe Deschanel is often the the dictionary picture next to the definition right it originated in a review about the movie elizabeth town which i have not seen but i think kirsten dunst is the manic pixie dream girl in that one to me the the peak manic pixie dream girl is natalie portman in garden state but but yeah you're right and i think in many ways it fits the definition because <laughs> i mean if you take some of the things here it's it's a she, of course. He makes sure we know that, that it's a she. She, uh, by the end, has taught him to love his son and his life again, at least a little bit. At least that's the conflict and resolution that is kind of laid out in front of us. So, I think you're onto something there. Yeah. Manic pixie cephalopod. <laughs> and, I, I mean, no, no hate on that type of character. I, I for one... Am a sullen male seeking quirky female. But <laughs> once you spot it, it's like we need to be mindful that this is what is happening. I think the element to which it becomes a criticism is that it often reduces a main female character. Their sole purpose being to not have their own agency, but to 
be a functional tool in the character development of another male character while also still sort of being the uh, object of attraction. That said, I mean, I'm a straight dude. I definitely don't shy away from the character stereotype myself. Do you shy away from octopus? <laughs> I don't have any strong feelings about octopus, although I did I did come to appreciate this one over time, as I mentioned. And that's essentially my octopus teacher. A lot of beautiful footage, cool music, strange dynamic with the narrator and his subject. But I wanted to run by you a theory that I have of what would truly make a revolutionary nature documentary. Are you ready? Yeah, let's hear it. So every nature documentary that has ever been made imposes a human perspective, a human concept of narrative. It's humans shooting the footage, editing the footage, talking us through the imagined interior lives of the animals who are ostensibly the subject. If we really want to understand the animals' lives, we need to have the animals making the movies. <laughs> I want to see the first nature documentary made by the animals. I want to see not Disney's bears. I want to see the secret world of bears as brought to you by the bears. So I could see you strapping a camera onto a bear. And letting it wander for a month or a year or something and then trying to recover it. Yes. Are the bears doing the editing in this scenario as well? That's going to be the tricky part. I don't think we're quite able to facilitate this yet, but but maybe soon, maybe some AI is involved. I would watch it. Yeah, I want to see him figure out how to make it happen for sure. Maybe like you run the dailies by the bears and... If it responds positively to one take versus another, that's what you go with. Obviously, now I am the one speculating. But I feel like the conclusion of such an exercise would basically be Werner Herzog's conclusion in Grizzly Man, which is that animals are just things out there trying to survive, and they don't really have the same type of interior emotional lives that humans do. And Maybe they have some element of it in some social lives and stuff, but... Mostly they're just out there to eat and to mate and to poop, and that's that. I suppose. I think all interior lives are just window dressing on the same things. I want to see the... <laughs> I want to see an animal make a movie. And it may never happen, but <laughs> the times are a-changing. And who knows what the future holds. Until then, we're always going to have nature documentaries where we're getting an individual's mindset over the framework of what the animals are doing. Okay, something we haven't touched on is how did this guy get all this footage? That's a really good point. They present it as he's just swimming around with a camera and he's always by himself, but many, many shots, there's no way that he's filming them. There's like wide shots of him swimming and there's a bunch of drone footage of him swimming. And he could not be doing these things while he's swimming. I'm glad you brought this up because this pulled me out of the supposed pretense of the film. As you said, that it's just this guy free diving by himself, isolated from the world. 
because it very much is not that. There has to be a crew around him. This isn't like Blair Witch Project style, found footage, dude had a camera with him type stuff. There's some of that where it's clear he's the one holding the camera, but you're right that there's a lot of it that is not that. And I had that reaction as well. And there's scenes like where the octopus is getting chased around by a shark where if it were the dude's camera, you know, this is a fast paced thing. You would get it as one shot, just like following the action. You wouldn't cut away because what if the shark eats the octopus? You don't want to miss that. But there are like five different camera angles. Right. And it's like, if there was one camera, he would have had to stop the camera and move so obviously there's more than one camera because it's happening fast so there is trickery at work here uh we will take orson wells's lessons to heart i think there's only one time that i can recall where it becomes a plot point that he has to go up and get air and come back down with the camera and this is during one of the more interesting segments which is that after the Tentacle has grown back from the first shark attack. Another shark is chasing down the octopus again. And it's doing that that same shell defense mechanism, that which is kind of how we met the octopus. So that was kind of a cool payoff here at the end that we saw. Oh, so that's its defense mechanism. It's like making a shell for itself. Because each one of its suckers can hold on to something and like almost make a, a stone ball around itself. But the shark is trying to get through and... You can tell that he's Craig is trying to capture this dramatic battle, but he has to go up and get air. And when he comes back down, somehow in those 20 seconds, the octopus has like snagged onto the back of the shark. And it makes you wish he could have just held his breath for 20 seconds more because I want to know how it did this maneuver to snag onto the back of the shark. And then the shark, it's like almost something out of a Looney Tunes. The shark can't figure out how to get the thing off of its back. Which way did he go? Yeah, that was funny. It seems like if he were the only one with a camera, that type of moment would happen a lot more. Right. Well, now here we are having spoken for more than an hour about a movie with not too much plot. It's a guy following an octopus. So it's apparent we all had strong feelings and did have a significant amount to talk about when it comes to my octopus teacher. Did you want to call out any other things about the movie that stood out to you, good or bad, before we try to answer our central question of the podcast? We kind of mentioned it at the beginning and have been hinting at it as you go. This movie is really beautiful for much of its duration. Like anytime it's underwater and swimming around, you see all these creatures. It's so beautiful that I audibly groaned every time it cut to this dude talking. It's like, I don't care about the dude. Get the dude away from me. Give me back to the underwater stuff. So just reemphasizing a positive there, the beauty of much of the camera work with another negative. Anytime this guy was the, the center of the screen. Okay. Well, then we're on pretty similar ground. The water footage is just so moving. And I do really, really like the concept of just being out in nature every day and documenting the things that happen around you. I think that's a good way to tackle this kind of project. And, I mean, going under the sea is not something that we get to do a lot. Right. It was cool to have something totally focused on it, and, and really just such clarity with the vision of it. 
It really was like you were swimming along down there. So, Dan, for you, is the 2021 Academy Award winning documentary My Octopus Teacher good? All right, Brian, let's put in our, in the spirit of the Oscars, our secret envelope, what our rating is on the eight point scale. I feel like if you are a listener who comes to our podcast, not from the beginning, but just kind of stumbling upon an episode, I'm not sure we do an adequate job outlining what this rating system is. So I'll just throw in a reminder here. It's an eight point goodness scale ranging from very not good, which is our one out of eight, up to our masterpiece rating, Tour Day Good with six other grades in the middle. And for me, I say, is it good? Yes. Is anything higher? Five or higher? Is it good? No. Is anything four or lower? So for me, is my octopus teacher good? So your experience with this and kind of where you land on it, I think will be how much, if at all, I've read some more positive reviews where people actually kind of liked this guy's journey. I don't think either of us are there. So for me, how much does the beauty of the footage get tarnished by this guy and his perspective? Like, I feel like there's a version of this movie that I personally would have liked a lot more. I mean, it's hard to say would have been better, given that it won the best documentary Oscar. But I think at least in terms of quality of movie would have been better. And that is don't have it be from this guy's perspective the movie is trying to get us to side with him and empathize with him. Have it be a more detached perspective where we wonder, is this a good way to deal with a midlife crisis? Or like, is this just kind of a detached, almost observation of the guy as much as it is an observation of the octopus in the title? I mean, that, that obviously would have been a very different movie, but I want to see it from that, that perspective instead with maybe somebody else narrating or I don't know, but for me, it's like, I'm sorry you got prescribed Viagra, dude, privileged ass, white asshole, but that doesn't mean you should divorce your wife and fall in love with an octopus and learn that nature sure is neat. Like, I kind of actually hoped the documentary would have ended with him waking up one day unable to find the octopus and him having to confront all of the emotional baggage he had placed on this invertebrate. Maybe I shouldn't have projected my identity onto this thing that felt no compassion or emotion or loyalty towards me. I don't know. So, like I said at the beginning of this podcast episode, I've been feeling kind of cantankerous because I have a little bit of a cold. But for me, I was a little bit sour overall on the perspective. I'm going to give it a high three out of eight. That is not not good. I think maybe if I watched it in a week, it would be closer to a four. Um, but I just, I couldn't convince myself that I enjoyed it or felt warmth towards it any higher than a three out of eight. All right. This might be, I don't know, we got to go to the tapes, might be our largest gulf, which is because, as I said, I sealed my envelope. I had this rating ready to go at the start. I didn't know if the weird vibes I got from the narrator dude would be shared by Dan. Uh, sometimes we confer and my rating changes based on uh, the discussion. You know, I, I reevaluate my initial views, but I'm opening my envelope. I gave this one a six out of eight. Very good. And this is because the footage to me and the vibe that the music gives it is like masterpiece territory. 
if this movie were a screensaver that played on your HDTV and there was no human involved, it would rate higher. It would be extremely memorable and great. But this dude is cement shoes weighing you down to sleep with the fishes. And yeah, depending on the flavor that this guy leaves you with, that's going to color how much you like the film overall. But for me, a big takeaway is there's a part of the movie at the start where he is talking about his experience and his career as a filmmaker. And it shows footage from a TV project that he worked on decades ago. And it's in four by three aspect ratio. He's like walking around a savanna somewhere. Just the quantum leap in definition. How good everything looks now versus a couple decades ago. Just what that could mean about what the future holds hit me so hard that I can tune out the things that the guy says. It's just like, we can take cameras out there and do things that have never been done before. We can break new ground and deliver film goers worldwide an experience that they've never seen before. And it's because of that potential that this movie rates as highly for me as it does. Yeah, it's interesting. I think we both kind of have the same overall take on the movie. And I do agree that it is transcendentally great from moment to moment with some of the visual stuff. It's interesting that we came away with such different ratings of it, but I guess I'm just being a little sour grapes today. No, I think it's very defensible. And as we draw to a close, I wanted to read a quote from Foster near the end of the movie that I think really bolsters my manic pixie dream girl comparison. He says, I fell in love, not just with her, but with the amazing wildness she represented. And it changed me. There you go. That's the manic pixie effect in action. And whenever I heard anything like that, I was like, dude, this should have been your dad energy. Like, that is the reaction you should have to your human child in action, not an octopus. So, not to keep harping on it. But, yeah, I think you're right. I like the, I like the Manic Pixie Dream Girl octopus take. That's a good one. So, we emerge now, walking back onto land from the deep. What do we see, Dan? What is the next movie that waits ahead for us? <clears throat> we are going to be recording... Next week will be the third week of May. We're getting close to the start of summer. I'm just going to jump the gun and give us a start of the summer movie. I have two others up my sleeve. I don't know if I'll do all of them this year or save them for the future. This is one that I have never seen. One that has inspired, I know, movies that I really loved, but I haven't seen. And it happens to be, to my knowledge... The only non-sci-fi feature-length film directed by George Lucas. And that is 1973's American Graffiti. Oh, it's not Red Tails about the Tuskegee Airmen? <laughs> is that another movie he made? Yeah, more recently. Oh, so maybe there, maybe there have been a couple. But no, this is American Graffiti. It's got a heck of a, a cast. Richard Dreyfuss. Got... Harrison Ford. Exactly. I was trying to remember his name. And Ron Howard. So 
we'll give it a, a watch. This is one that's, that's been near the top of my two watch list for a while, and I think it's finally seasonally appropriate. I'm excited. Yeah, it's in the same category for me. I've never actually watched it, and glad to have an excuse now. Cool. Well, as always, it's been a pleasure tearing a movie apart with you, Dan. <laughs> an Oscar winner. That's right. The Academy has spoken, and now so have we. Thank you all for listening. If you have enjoyed what you heard, subscribe. You can give us a rating. Give us a review. Tell us if we're good. And I hope you join us again here for The Goods, a film podcast. Mm-hmm.